This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Thank you very much, uh, my brother Brian. Thank you, Pastor David. It's my second time to see you. We had a meeting, and uh, I'm very happy to be here today. And uh, my sister Elizabeth uh, and uh, Brian, they have been so good to me. And uh, I do request uh, uh, as a church to give Pastor David, my brother Brian, and uh, Elizabeth a hand clap, if you can. Thank you very much. And uh, also for your coming here, I appreciate your coming uh, because I'm going to share a story of God with you. Therefore, I greet you all, ladies and gentlemen, in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I bring warm greetings from Uganda. Uh, Uganda is a country in East Africa. And this country is very interesting. It's, it resembles a little bit Ireland because it's ever green and we have a lot of rain in Uganda. So it's not new for me to find rain here. Uh, almost we are the same. I like your country because when they treated me with acid, uh, they told me to be in a cold environment. Acid is very burning. So my first trip was in Finland. The snow was, you know, the rain was snow. And to me, everybody was saying, yeah, yeah, to me it was a blessing. <laughs> you know, there is a blessing in disguise. And uh, when I come here and it's cool, yes, as an African man, I feel it's cool, but it is good for my health. And another thing, you are lovely people, uh, uh, hospitable, and I have enjoyed being here. I bring warm greetings from my family. I'm a family man with six children. My first born is 18. My last born are twin boys. Joshua and Caleb. So uh, 18, the last borns are seven. They love Jesus and uh, they pray for me even when I'm here. I am a victim of religious persecution. Uh, after my conversion from Islam to Christianity. I was born in a Muslim family I'm like a child number 52 from my father's home. My father produced many children, but we were all Muslims. But by the grace of God, I had the preaching of the gospel and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Jesus is powerful. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save every human being 
when I became a Christian, I was discipled, discipled in a church. And uh, after some time, I began to preach the gospel. And currently, I'm a senior pastor of Gospel Life Church International, a church based in Kampala, Uganda. Kampala is the capital city of Uganda. And uh, this church is on Entebbe Road with around uh, about a thousand members. And the good news we have, 30% of our members are ex-Muslims. The Lord gave us a strategy and a mission of reaching out to Muslims. And uh, many of my people have come out of Islam and they love Jesus Christ. But there is one thing that we have in common, me and them, and that thing is called persecution. This is something that the Western world is, not only Western world, the Church of Jesus Christ is taking lightly, but my message to you is that time has come for the church to raise up and uh, never to keep quiet again against the persecution of Christians. I was reading, when I went there, inside there, I was reading some histor historical things concerning Christianity in the Middle East. And I realized that uh, in the first century, actually, Christianity stayed in the Middle East many years than Islam. Christianity was the first in the Middle East. And Islam came after 500 years. But it's amazing that today, we have more Muslims in the Middle East than Christians. What does that imply? It shows that if we don't stop what took away the Christians in the Middle East, it can take away Christians from here. If you have an animal on the village that eats children, and you hear that it has eaten the neighbor's children, and you just think it's okay, would you think that your children are safe? It's just a question, brothers and sisters. This is an animal in a village. It eats every child. It has just finished to eat the neighbor's child. And now for you, you think everything is all right. Are your children safe? I think you understand what I'm talking about. Oh, sorry, sorry. Help me, help me to... Switch off this. Uh, these African people. <laughs> Praise the Lord. They think it's night. You know, in Africa now it's going to turn. Here it's, we're just beginning to do God's work. Uh, uh, To cut the long story short, I stand before you representing the victims of religious persecution. Uh, on the 24th of December 2011, 
I was coming out of the church and the extremists met me and they poured acid on my head. This head you see, they poured acid on me. Acid is a very burning chemical. If it's put on anything, it can dissolve it. Actually, acid dissolves metals. When you get any metal around here and put it in acid, it will dissolve. Just imagine, if acid dissolves metals, what can happen if it's put on a human skin? There are different types of acid, nitric, hydrochloric, sulfuric acids, but they are all having a catastrophic effect on a human skin. Whichever type of acid you get, it will affect a human skin gravely. When acid is thrown in a person, the result is horrifying. It causes the skin tissue to melt, often exposing the bones below the flesh, and sometimes even dissolving the bones. The doctors told me that the acid that was put on me was likely to eat all the flesh and dissolve all my bones. It's a miracle for me to be standing here today to share the goodness of the Lord with you because an acid attack on a person would dramatically change your life. Many survivors of acid are forced to give us their education, their occupation, and other important activities in their lives. This is because recovering from a trauma takes up most of their time, and because of the disfigurement that they get, it handicaps everybody in a very conceivable way. Asked burnt me to near death, had God not helped me. Actually, one time, I, I developed a wound from here up to here. This skin was going down, and this one was going up. Wherever you could touch, the skin was peeling off from the bones. And the doctors told me, I have 99 chances to die. I said, if God still needs me to live, one percent with Jesus will be better than the majority. I stood with one percent with Jesus. I'm still alive in Jesus' mighty name. So with God, all things are possible. As the victims are permanently maimed, disfigured, and at times blinded, this leads to severe physical and psychological and social scarring. Due to the uh, devastating effect caused by acid on a human body, the victims can rarely engage into gainful employment. And for women, mothering to have a baby is rendered extremely difficult, if not impossible. So when you get acid, because of stigma, many acid victims are left blind and maimed. Actually, even very few are willing to give them jobs. That this is so painful that a pastor like me, if I was known 
being employed by Jesus, I could have lost a job. Nobody wants to employ you, specifically in Africa, because of stigma. And most acid victims find it hard to associate with uh, the community. Many of them find ending their lives as the only solution. Some of them commit suicide. So, to me, I thank God so much. One day they put me on BBC TV, and uh, they put six of us who were victims. But I was talking with confidence. And then a BBC person, they were broadcasting to live through Skype. Me, I was in Tel Aviv. Another one was in, in, uh, in uh, New York. Another one was in South Africa. Another one somewhere in Spain. And then they said, why do you have a strong confidence? This was BBC. I said, my difference with others is my faith. Then he asked me, what are you talking about? I said, I draw my confidence in the man called Jesus Christ because he is the hope to the hopeless. It was very powerful, as you know, BBC of today, to talk about the hope of hopeless being Jesus Christ. After the show, one of the person working in BBC called me and said, what you have done is incredible. Today, to talk about Jesus on BBC is like raising a dead. <laughs> That's what a man told me. He said, I'm working here, but even us, uh, we, we, talk, we don't talk about this. So uh, what I went through is very, very horrific. Ladies and gentlemen, this face was operated over 12 times. Even before this, I had survived over 12 assassination attempts on my life just because of becoming a Christian. The big question comes, this is a horrific attack, but why did people do this to me? Why? This is a very important question to consider. Why and who poured acid on my face? The answer is simple. They were Muslim extremists, and the reason they put acid on me is because I changed from Islam to Christianity. Is that a crime? Is that a crime? It's a basic human right. But they did it. It's a horrific story. But what is amazing, it's not only me. Many people continue to suffer because of being Christians. This is where my point is. It's not only me. If it was me, we could have said, okay, it's you, okay. You, moreover, you now disfigured, you can die. But it's not only me. It's not only in Uganda. It's not only in one country. It's everywhere. We are living in a time of unprecedented persecution of Christians. Actually, this is almost happening now all over the world. And it has become the greatest crises of the modern age. However, even after United Nations accepted a long overdue reality that today 
Christians are the most persecuted people in the world. Still, this world body has done nothing to stop this problem. Much is being said about Islamophobia. Have you ever heard about Islamophobia? Somebody you have ever heard about Islamophobia? I want to see your hand if you have ever heard about this. Okay, you've heard about Islamophobia and the likes, but Christian phobia is not mentioned. Yet it's a more reality problem in our world today than any other. You talk about Islamophobia, you cannot tell me last week where many Muslims were killed just because of being Muslims. There is no way today you can tell me that a Muslim was killed just because of being a Muslim. But as we sit here, even as we are here, somebody somewhere is dying because of Jesus Christ. In Syria, our brothers and sisters are crucified on the cross. We used to read about the cross in the Bible as they crucified Jesus. That's a long ago story. It's happening right now. People are being cut off. Their heads are being cut off in many countries of the world. People are poisoned. The other day, people were coming from a place called Galisa in Kenya and going to Nairobi. And some people jumped out of the bush and stopped the bus. This is in Kenya, where Muslims are less than 15%. They jumped out of the bush. And when they jumped out of the bush, they stopped the bus. And they asked them, do you know Muhammad? Do you know Islam? They lined those who can answer the questions of Islam in Arabic, and they put them aside. And then they got those who failed to answer the questions of Islam, put them aside. And then they told these Muslims to enter in the, in the vehicle, and the bus left. These ones who were Christians, they put them on the floor and shot them and cut off their heads, dying for nothing. People used to think that the extremists, they have an ideology. And when they are killing people, people think when you please them politically, they will stop. Some people used to blame Israel, think that if Israel is giving them land, they will stop. The problem is not land. The problem is not a city. America forced Israel to give Hamas and uh, other people Gaza. They gave them Gaza. Did, did, did they stop to fight? Church, did they stop to fight? They gave them West Bank. Did they stop to fight? So this is a very serious matter. We see gruesome stories that revealing beheading of Christians every day on our TV. These attacks have nothing to do with war, combat, or insurgency. The victims are innocent Christians who are specifically targeted and abused on the account of their faith by those who claim their religion as a motive. This is very important. The world today believes lies than truth. The people who kill our brothers and sisters, the moment they do it, they mention who they are. And they say, we are Muslims fighting for Islam. Unfortunately, the politicians come and say, they are not Muslims. Islam is a peaceful religion. 
But those who killed, they told us their religion. Specifically, that means in the world today, there is a spirit of compromise. They call it political correctness. And some of the Christians are buying in this. But let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, we are sons of truth. We must speak the truth. And Jesus never called us to be politically correct. Jesus called us to be spiritually connected. When we are spiritually connected, that's when we have a proof that we shall go to heaven. We will do God's will, not the desires of human beings. Today, there is a lot of lies. There is a lot of compromise. Actually, in the church, it's caused by fear. When people fear, they create circumstances and try to compromise with lies. That's why in America, there is a religion that is being formed, and this religion is called Islam. Have you ever heard about that religion called Islam? I want to say a hand if somebody has ever heard about it. A few of us, I will tell you, what is Islam? All that they are trying to do is to combine Christianity and Islam. And they are saying they want to get one religion of Christians and Muslims. Let me tell you here, I studied Islamic theology and I studied Christian theology. I am a pastor. I know the Bible and I know the Quran. If Islam was having any inch of truth, I could have been a Muslim by now. But one thing I know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. Nobody will go to God except through Jesus Christ. If you believe it, say amen. amen. And the Bible says there is no any other name that can save man except the name of Jesus Christ. We are not trying to get another religion. No, the man, Jesus Christ, is the truth. He said, I am the way, not we are. He said, I am the truth and life. The word is clear. Nobody will go to the Father except through me. That means whether he's a good president, whether he's a pope or somebody, nobody. It's the reason I left the mosque and I came to the church. Because nobody, Muhammad cannot do that. Jesus can. Now today, if you find a Christian trying to bring these religions together, true, we have to love people. True, we must work with people. But any love that causes disobedience against God's word is not love. It's a satanic thing. That's why, get it from me, this religion called Islam. Any idea that formed it is a satanic idea. It's an ungodly venture. It's not true. I will give you two examples. One, to be a true Christian, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Is it true? Do I have somebody in the house who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Come on, lift up your hand and say, Jesus is the Son of God. 
Shout it as if you believe it and say, Jesus is the Son of God. Do we believe that all? Yes. The Bible says so. And the Bible says God has given us everlasting life and this life is in his son. No son of God, no life. Now, to be a true Muslim, you must reject that Jesus is the son of God. What does it show? These are contrasting powers. To be a true Christian, you must believe that Jesus is the son of God. To be a true Muslim, you must believe that God has no son. I learned it when I was four years. He says, Which means that God will never have a son. That means these religions, this kind of faith cannot be compatible. They are contrasting forces. Actually, in Christianity, there is two important things that we cannot compromise with. One is Jesus being a son of God. That one, even if we were to amend the Bible, that one is an untouchable issue. Because where there is no son of God, there is no salvation. Am I talking sense to you? Where there is no son of God, there is no heaven. Am I talking sense to you? Another point is about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That one, there is no peace talks about that. We cannot say, let's sit down and try to talk about this. This is a matter that is not debatable. We cannot debate about this. The man died and rose from the dead, period. Believe it or leave it, when you leave it, we believe it. We don't apologize for preaching that. It's the truth. Oh, if you believe what I say, say amen. amen. I don't apologize for saying that Jesus rose from the dead. Whether you believe it or you don't believe it. In Africa, we believe in, you know, we have so commanding language. So forgive me when I say that. And it helps us to be strong Christians. But there is a song we sing for those people who are against our belief. And we say, it's in Swahili. It says, Siku zote tunaimba, siye, yesu ni buwana. Hata leo tunasema tena, yesu ni buwana. Usiku na mchana tunaimba. Malaika wanaimba uko biguni. Wanaimba na kusifu na kusujudu. Nabi Isaya na yalitabiri. Yuwana mubatiza je yalitabiri. Tena wewe nani kamo na pinga iyo. Ukataye ukipinge sauri yako. That is African song. You know what it means? It means that we are here and we believe in Jesus Christ. He's the only way to heaven. And then we continue by saying... That what we are believing is not a joke. It's not a lie because it was prophesied by prophet Isaiah. It was prophesied by Jeremiah and all other prophets, even Moses. Then we continue to say, who are you to refute that? We continue to say in African way and we say, even if you refute, even if you refuse, even if you reject 
it's up to you. For us, we believe it's the truth. Somebody shout hallelujah. So it's a song showing that whether you believe or not, you will not change us. We will continue believing the truth of God. If you believe what I say, clap your hand to Jesus and say amen. So the fact that Islam rejects the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that Islam rejects Jesus being a son of God is enough proof to show you that these two forces cannot be put together. Am I talking sense? In your Bible, let's read one verse and you see what I'm talking about. In your Bible. We're going to read in John, 1st John, the letter, 1st John chapter 2 and verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 22, 1st John. There they are telling us, classifying a person who rejects Jesus being a son of God and giving him a name. What does the word of God say? I will count three and he will read with a loud voice. I request you to read. Read the word of God without fear. We're going to read First John, uh, John chapter 2 and verse 22 with a clear loud voice. Okay, one, two, three, start. Let's stop there. Let's read again. Can I request you to read again? One more time. Read it clearly and loudly. One, two, three, start. The last part is what I want us to emphasize. He is anti-Christ. Have you seen that in your Bible? Who? That person who denies the Father and the Son. That has classified the spirit of Islam to be a spirit of Antichrist. It rejects the Father it rejects the son. Whether somebody is a preacher of a big name, if he brings Chrislam any compromise of the word of God, he is disqualified to be a man of God. Because however big somebody can be, the word of God is higher than anybody. Oh, somebody say hallelujah. So the Bible declares that a spirit that rejects Jesus being a son of God is a spirit of Antichrist. And this is a spirit of Islam. That's why when Muslims come up in big number, Christianity will go down. Accept when Christians take a stand. But if you don't take a stand, the spirit of Islam is a dangerous spirit that can swallow communities. I'll give you an example. North Africa is the first part of Africa to be Christian. 
go in church history, you'll ask these pastors they know. In North Africa, the church fathers, people preach the gospel strongly. Among the early preachers of the gospel, they were people of North Africa. This man who carried the cross of Jesus, the black man from Sirene, you know that man? This man was a black man from Africa. After seeing what happened in Jerusalem and Jesus was crucified, he went back and he preached the gospel. Remember the man whom is in Acts of the Apostles chapter 8, who was coming from Jerusalem to worship. He was coming from North Africa to Jerusalem. During the time when the apostles were being filled with the Holy Spirit in the city of Jerusalem, among the people who were there were people from North Africa. So North African people were so much early in the faith of Christianity. At the early stage, but what happened in 600, between 600 to 800, Islam invaded Africa and it entered North Africa. What happened? They destroyed, two things happened. They destroyed the churches. They destroyed Christian faith and they established Islam. Today when you go to North Africa, it's all Islamic. Actually, even the local people, this is the uniqueness and the dangerous part of the Arabization Islamic agenda. Even the local people who were local people of North Africa were destroyed. They were called the Babas. When you go to North Africa, those people were like me, dark colors. They are no longer there. They were destroyed completely. And then the Arabization took place. The entire North Africa is like a Middle East. What does it show? It shows that the spirit of Islam is a dangerous spirit in a kind that it can come to a place and, uh, and, and change the community and change the religion and change the culture and destroy the people. That's why when you allow it to take its root in Europe, you will see no Europe in 200 years to come. There will be no European. Just in 50 years, you will see a change. I will tell you the truth. In my country, we, I'm coming from East Africa. East Africa is having different ports. Many black people, they blame Europeans and Americans for slave trade. But according to my study, I don't blame any, any European for slave trade. In Africa, we did not, in my part, our grandfathers did not see any European coming to, to trade people. Who came? They were Arabs. One of them is called Muhammad al-Marjib. He was a Muslim trading people in, in East Africa. And those Arabs, they were using three ports, important ports in Africa, in East Africa. One is the Mombasa, another one is Zanzibar, another one is Malindi. Because of slave trade, the Arabs came just for slave trade, but when they stayed, they destroyed the communities around. As we speak today, the grandchildren of the Arab Muslims are there. And when you reach there, it's in Africa, but when you go to Zanzibar, it's Islamic place, and the people there are colored Arab people staying there. When you go to Malindi, it's the same thing. When you go to Mombasa and Kenya, it's the same thing. 
What does it show? It shows that the spirit of Islam is a dangerous spirit that can come in a community and swallows up the community, destroys the, uh, the culture, and Arabize the country. It's happening. That's why today we have a lot of challenges going on in the Middle East. I will give you an example. Middle East extremists, they drove out Jews decades ago. Unfortunately, the Christians thought that it's going to end up with Jews. This was a mistake. When they finished to drive out the Jews, now they are driving out Christians. Do you know that, in the, you know, according to the facts that is in history, in the early 20th century, Christians were 20% of the population of the Middle East. Early 20th century. Christians were 20% of the population of the Middle East. But regardless of the fact that you hear testimonies about many people are coming to, 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 to the Lord, uh, many Muslims converting in the Middle East, how many people have heard that there is a revival in the Middle East? Lift up a hand if you have heard. Great, it's happening there and God is doing. But this report lacks the conclusion. When they come to Christ, what happens? That one is not told. Many of them, when they come to Christ, they are persecuted and others are killed. So, as we are happy for them to get saved, we must also think about what happens to them when they get saved. And what are we doing? The idea is not to cause a problem for them. The idea to, is to make them disciples, isn't it? So if we are making them disciples, we must think about what happens to them after they get converted. So as we speak right now, regardless of the revivals going on in the Middle East, in the early 20th century, Christians constituted a full 20% of the population of the Middle East, but now Christians are just 5%. Now tell me, from 20% to 5%, is it an increase? What does it show? Some of them, they have immigrated to Europe, America. Others have been killed. But still others, they convert and they get threatened and they backslid. They back away because of the pressure. When you go to the Middle East, you will realize this. Therefore, it will be an oversight for us to feel less concerned regarding the persecution of Christians. The Bible says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, it says that we are a body of Christ made up of different members. If one part is hurting, the whole body will suffer. This is very important. If we are really part of one another, or the body of Christ, and there is only one body of Christ, then we should therefore feel the pain when one of our brothers and sisters is being persecuted because of their belief in Jesus Christ. That means if we don't get touched or concerned regarding the persecution of Christians, we must honestly ask ourselves to what body do we belong? My call to you this evening is that we shouldn't at all sit back and ignore the targeted acts of terrorism 
on Christian civilians and church workers. One par parliamentarian, a man from UK, I think his name was Edmund. Do you know somebody called Edmund? He, he was a member of parliament. He said that the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is good men to do nothing. That means if we look at the persecution and the rate of persecution of Christians and we just look at it and do nothing, evil will triumph. If we don't want evil to triumph, we must for sure do something about the challenge of the persecution of Christians. Here our problem is, actually, if we don't address it there, we will need to fight it here. If you hear your TV about the Christians being slaughtered there, and you don't do anything when they're there, you will need to fight them here. That's why four years ago, the government of France was supporting people of Palestine and others against Israel and talking bad things against Israel. And when young men got swords and began to stab people on the streets of Jerusalem, in France, instead of condemning those acts of terrorism, they were condemning Netanyahu and Israel. Prime Minister Netanyahu went to Paris in France and told them, terrorism is the same. If you support it when it's, or if you don't condemn it when it's in Israel, very soon it will be in your city. Two years passed. What happened? Today in France, Paris, it's worse than Tel Aviv. Me, I have stayed in Israel for three to four years. I feel safe to be in Tel Aviv than to be in Paris. If you don't fight it there, it will be here. The buses began to be bombed in Jerusalem. People could come when everybody is going to work and suicide bombers enter the bus and they blast the buses. And the Americans said, Israel, they are bombing you because you, you took their land. Give them their land. They didn't know what they were saying. Terrorism is terrorism. And they have no ideology. Few years passed, they were bombing America. Did the America also steal the land? Few years passed, they were bombing the United Kingdom. Bombs were in London. Did also United Kingdom steal the land? The idea is extremism is extremism. The Bible says the enemy of the church, this enemy, is not a man, is Satan. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, when you say such words, people may think, you know, maybe this man is a bigot. You know, these days they are, they are you know, getting words, inventing words that can scare us to speak the truth. Maybe he's a bigot. Maybe he's a hater. Hate speaker. I'm not a hate speaker. You don't know what happened to me. 
this face was burnt, almost cut off. They were almost cutting off my head. I could not do this. But the first thing I did before going to hospital is to forgive the people who put acid on me. I hold no grudge. Actually, even TBN and, and, uh, and uh, yeah, CBN and TBN, they broadcasted a program about me. When you go, you'll Google it and find. I was on TBN and CBN. They broadcasted a, a, a program about me uh, which says uh, that I forgave my attackers. I forgave them. I hold no grudge against the people who put acid on me because I knew they don't know what they are doing. So when I'm speaking here, it's not all about hate. I encourage you to don't hate Muslims. We are not called to hate. We are people of love. But love does not mean that we don't speak the truth. In love, there is no lie. In love, there is truth. That's why we don't need to promote lies. We need to promote truth. So, according to the scriptures, when you look into the verses, the Bible says our enemy Satan is like a lion. He's not seated in one place. He's here, there, and there. That means today has been in Uganda and I'm a victim. This is not a movie. I am a victim of persecution. The acid they put on me, they could have put it on you. Because the reason they put on me acid is the reason you have. They put on me acid because of Jesus. How many people believe in Jesus and you are here? That's the reason they put acid on me. That means they could have put on you. I just represented you. So you must feel that pain because I got acid because of what you believe. That means if the person who put acid on me, if he gets a chance to come there where you stay, he will put acid on you. Do you understand what I'm talking about? So, uh, basing on that, we must know that the Bible says that the enemy is like a lion moving from one place to another. But the Bible does not say that run. Yes, the lion comes, run. No. The Bible says because it's like a lion moving from one place to another, do what? Resist him. Have you ever read about that? The Bible does not say fear. It says resist him. I call upon you to determine and we resist the enemy. We have all the power. The reason why we don't resist is because of fear. It's fear that creates things like a Christlam, Political correctness. But the Bible says in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. God Almighty has not given us the spirit of fear. He has given us the spirit of boldness. That's why I pray this evening that fear will go out of your heart in the name of Jesus Christ. That you will get boldness when you're speaking. You will know exactly that you are an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. We are not jokers here, and we are not politicians. We represent heaven. If you believe what I say, say amen. amen. So we must ask what are, why there is syndicate attacks of Christians in this era. Why? The answer is the extremists 
are trying their best to establish a Muslim world empire. Why there is a lot of attacks on Christians in our time? The answer is simple. The Muslim extremists are planning and fighting to establish an Islamic empire all over the world. Not only in Uganda, not only in the Middle East. That means no country is exempted. My country and your country are all involved. That means we must all be alert. The Bible tells us be alert. That means the problems you hear in another country, if you don't do anything, it may come to your country. Actually, yesterday I got a message. In the crowd where I preached yesterday, somebody took my contacts and today has sent me this message. Praise the Lord, Pastor Mulind. I'm very happy that God has brought you to Northern Ireland to preach. I'm crying. My heart is full of pain. The things you have preached, I have a personal experience. I am a woman, a mother of one and a widow. But my daughter got married to a Muslim man. The Muslim man took my daughter to Libya. And as I speak right now, the girl has changed the name and, has, and does not want to talk to me. What does it show? As we speak right now, somebody's daughter has been taken. Isn't that a sign that something is happening here? Something is in the cooking? So, according to what is happening, this Islamic imperialistic tendency... Many people does not believe it, but it's happening. It began as a religious ideology, but now they are strategically extending it to politics, legal, economic, sports, entertainment, civil, media, academia, and other avenues which they use as a propaganda to fulfill this agenda. This is an urgent matter, though unfortunately, many people know very little about this agenda. And sometimes I notice that a kind of self-delusion attitude in not wanting to understand this danger is so strong in our world today. People, they see that it's painful to admit to processes that threaten our chaste world, and sometimes they fear to take action because the process can be painful. But we must consider this. That regardless of the technological and military advancement, specifically by the Western world, Islamist ideology is spreading all over the world. Do you see it spreading? Am I talking something very new? Do you see some sign and tips of it? Now, the failure by the the failure by the Western world to overcome extremism. To me, I get it that it's credited in the Western world misleading conclusions, such as refusal to understand the Middle East dynamics. And this is what is 
promoting extremism. You know, there is unfounded theories in the West. For example, there are those who believe that Islamic extremism is caused by lack of education, unemployment, discrimination, social and economic factors, poverty and absence of uh, development, and that the Muslims get frustrated and then they begin to be radical. According to these people or this camp, they say that the absence of socioeconomic opportunities and solving some issues of political imbalance matters much more than the clash of civilization or war of ideologies. In my view, that is wrong. Actually, such may be likened to treating a sickness using erroneous prescription and wrong medicine altogether. However, with careful observation, we will find that the root cause of Islamic extremism is more religious than political. I will give you a few examples. You've heard about the Islamophobia and the radicalization. In the world today, everybody is interpreting this in his own way. But if you want to make a fair judgment, I will invite everybody to the Quran. The Bible is the constitution of Christians, isn't it? Whatever the Bible says, that is the true interpretation of Christianity. How many people say amen? amen? So if you want to define clearly the root cause of extremism, let's look at the Quran. Everybody will say, you know, these are good people, but let's look at the Quran and find whether they are good people. Let's look at the Quran and find whether they are peaceful. When you check the Quran, chapter 8 of the Quran, like I told you, verse 12, we find that in the Quran, many verses of the Quran advocate for extreme violence, jihad against infidels, and it talks about killing non-Muslims. Now, this is one verse, chapter 8 and verse 12. It says that... I will cast terror into the hearts of those who are non-Muslims. Now, the word terrorism is clearly founded in the Quran. And according to the Quran, it's Allah who casts terror in the hearts of non-Muslims. Wherever there is terrorism, they feel as if it's a spiritual religious obligation that God is doing something to threaten non-Muslims. Therefore, after he says that he's going to cast terror, he's telling them, therefore, strike off their heads. Strike off every fingerprints, every fingertips of them. Now, if you see what Aisha and others are doing, and people say those are not Muslims, that is a lie. The Quran, chapter 8, verse 12 says, casting terror in the hearts of non-Muslims is a religious obligation. Therefore, the believers are told to cut off the heads of those non-Muslims. How many non-Muslims are seated here? You are non-Muslim. You don't believe in Islam. Lift up a hand. The Quran says your head must be off. If I was a Muslim, I told you, if I had come here the other time, I could have been praying how I take one of your head here. But today, because of Christ, 
I'm praying to see that you will keep your head and continue to be a witness of Jesus Christ. Am I talking sense? That means that if a Muslim is truly serious about practicing his religion, he must cast terror in the hearts of those who disbelieve, cutting off the heads, and so forth. So how do we explain the so-called moderate Muslim who is not interested in taking up the sword or bring the sword, uh, uh, the world into submission of Allah? There are two possibilities. One, either he is using taqiyya, a strategy of spreading Islam through deception, or his religion is more of a culture thing. Somebody may pretend to be a moderate, and to you, you think he's a moderate, yet for sure he's doing something to hide his identity and supporting extremism at the back. It's possible. Also in Islam, there is a teaching called taqiyya. Taqiyya means you can lie in a way of spreading Islam. That means Christianity and Islam are different. Because in Christianity, Jesus said, they shall know the truth and the truth shall set them free. So Jesus is sending us to spread the truth, not lies. But here in Islam, there is a clear teaching called taqiyya. That means use deception, lies. So somebody may pretend. Actually, in my book, I wrote about the five stages of changing countries into Islamic states. And some of the best stages, there is deception. On stage three, they begin to demand the rights. Stage four, they begin to impose the rights. Stage five, they begin violence. If you read those stages, you'll know where your country is, according to the stages. So, according to this, either somebody is using taqiyya, or his religion is more of a cultural thing, that such a follower could be likened to a lukewarm Christian or a Jew who only observes the high holidays. However, the more serious a moderate Muslim gets about practicing his religion, the more radicalized he will become. So the most popular and largely dominant theory that the more Muslims feel discriminated against is the more likely they are, they are to engage in terrorism and join terrorism or terrorist groups is baseless. This theory claims to be research-based, but it's only fitting to us, therefore, to examine why is it not equally applicable to the Jews and Christians? Now, people say that because of discrimination, that's why the Muslims go into terrorism. But let me ask you a question. Is there any group of people that has been discriminated in the world than the Jews? Do you know any? No. At one time, six million people were killed. Today, Jews could have been terrorists in Europe, hitting every city of Europe. Because even today, they are discriminated against in America. But the fact that we don't have any Jewish terrorist organization hitting the cities of Europe is the proof that discrimination is not the cause of terrorism. Number two, Christians could have been terrorists by now. Christians are killed in every country that is Islamic. If discrimination was the cause of terrorism, 
the Christians could have been terrorizing Arab world by now. Churches have been burnt, cut, heads have been cut off. Even recently, about two days ago, actually, uh, there is a man in Australia. Can you imagine? In Australia, this man is from Iran, and uh, the wife became a Christian. And when the man realized that the wife has become a Christian, the man decided to kill the wife. Not in Iran, in Australia. What does it show? This message is the message of the time. If it happens in Australia, you cannot stop it happening in this town unless we do something. Am I talking sense? I was preaching in London. I went to Liverpool. I went to uh, which other city? Uh, eh? Birmingham. In Birmingham, I got information that the things I'm talking about are already happening in Birmingham. If it happens in Birmingham, there is no way you can say here it will never. What do we have to do? The Bible says in the book of Psalms 11 verse 3, when the foundations are shaken, what can a righteous man do? We need to do something. And we can do it. It's a high time Christians come out of silence and we speak up and we address the challenge of our days. The more we keep quiet, we like ostrich. You know, in Africa, people hunt animals for many reasons and birds. But there is one funny bird. This bird is called ostrich. It's very big, huge. How many people know ostrich? Very huge bird. But you know, however much it's huge, there is its weakness. It, in Africa, they are saying that it can run faster than rain. That's what African people say. That when it see rain here, it can run and go and reach to Belfast before the rain reaches there. But you know what? However much it is running fast, when it gets tired, this is what it does. It normally keeps up nearby the sea or nearby the sand. So when it's running and it gets tired, it normally goes where there is sand. It's big, but the head is small. So it puts, hides the head in the sand. And this is what it says. Because I don't see them, they don't see me. I pray that the ostrich culture in the church will die. We think that maybe somehow God will get away and help us. And when we are praying, people say, we are praying, we cancel that in the name of Jesus, and they do nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe in prayer, but prayer without action is dead. It's like faith without action. When you pray for food, God will give you money, but he will not drop money from heaven. After prayer, you are the one who will go and work for money. You put action on prayer. Actually, it's God who gives you appetite to eat food, isn't it? How many people believe that God gives us appetite and provides food and he cooks also? Just a question, my brothers and sisters. 
How many people believe that God gives us clothes? Gives us money to buy clothes. All right? He makes a choice for you. God does not cook food. It's me to cook. It's him to give me appetite. It's God who gives wonderful sleep. But God does not make a bed. It's for me to make my bed and God will provide with good sleep. It's a high time the church to prepare to address the challenge of our days and God will give us victory. Oh, somebody say amen. amen. I will give you a few examples here. Islamic radicalization and violence is not a matter of discrimination. It's rooted in the ideology, setup, and teachings of Islamic religion. These are teachings of torture, enslavement, beheading, cruelty, among others. Indeed, the Quran incites unrestrained murder of non-Muslims. For example, in chapter 9 of the Quran, verse 111, Muslims passport to paradise, a Muslim sure way of getting to, uh, to, get, to go to paradise, according to Allah, is when a Muslim is slain, in trying to kill or when he kills a non-Muslim. Now, here they say that if a Muslim wants to go to heaven straight, he can go there through two ways. One, to kill a non-Muslim. Or two, to die in the process of killing a non-Muslim. What does that mean? Suicide bombing. This is in the verse. It's in the book. So, when the Muslim is slain or killed in the process, chapter five, 56, verse 22, and chapter 56, verse 35 to 37, the Muslim who will reach in heaven after killing or being killed will get 72 virgins to enjoy sexually. Chapter 9, verse 5, this is another verse in the, in, in the Quran. It tells Muslims to kill the infidels wherever they find them. Actually, chapter 9, verse 5, teaches Muslims to commit mass murder, kill as many as possible. Until it says that kill them, they have to, number one, to believe, tell them to believe Islam. If they refuse, you must kill them. In chapter 9 and verse 29, there is extortion. When you tell them, here the Quran commands Muslims to attack and kill the people of the book. Who are the people of the book? Jews and Christians. That's why when they're attacking Jews, don't think it will stop there. No, they will attack us too. We must stand with the Jews. The victory of Israel is the victory of the church. Somebody say amen. So verse, uh, chapter 9 and verse 5 and chapter 9 and verse 29 is a call to mass murder and extermination. And many other verses there in chapter 5 and verse 32 is a teaching of mass extermination and genocide against non-Muslims. This is what they are doing in Nigeria and other places. In chapter 5 and verse 33, they are told, how are the non-Muslims being murdered? Listen attentively. They are giving them a way how they are going to be murdered. Chapter, this is chapter 5, verse 33. 
they will be killed or crucified. When you see Iso crucifying there, it's fulfilling this verse. Or they, they must have their hands and feet alternate sides cut off. Or will be expelled out of the land. You heard about first ISO gave 48 hours our brothers in Iraq to leave those places. This is in the scripture. When we go to chapter uh, 65 verse 4, this is a teaching of pedophilia. How many people know what pedophilia is all about? So the primary duty of mankind is to raise children in a safe and caring environment so they can progress into responsible adults. There is no worse crime than the sexual abuse and exploitation of children. But verse 60, chapter 65 and verse 4 clearly approves marriages and sexual cooperation with pre-pubescent little girls who haven't started the menstruation yet. When you go on the Google, you'll see it was agreed in one country the sheikhs, the leader said that somebody can marry a child as young as six to seven years. And according to the teaching of Islam, when Muhammad was at the age of 50, he complied with this teaching and he married Aisha at the age of six. 50 plus married a six-year girl. This is a tradition acceptable even in the mosque is mentioned about. So it's not something we're cooking, it's in the book. When you go into chapter 33 and verse 50, it sanctions unrestrained slavery. Chapter 2 and verse 178, slavery is acceptable. Actually today, the Europeans and others stopped this slavery business. But as we speak right now, in Arab world, slavery is being practiced. They are still slaves in the Arab world. It's happening. In chapter 4 and verse 34, we see the uh, sanctioning of beating of a wife. Here they say, actually, even the Constitution of Saudi Arabia, beating a woman is illegal, is according to the law. They say that if your wife is troubling you, the best way to put sense into her mind is to beat her. And in the Quran, it's allowed in chapter 4 and verse 34, so uh, they say Muslim is a, uh, I mean, a Muslim woman is a property of her husband. A Muslim husband has a right, actually, uh, and a religious obligation to beat a wife if she disobeys him, is disloyal to him, or simply does not please him. So the reasons of beating are very simple. So the concept of wife abuse does not exist in Islam. There is no concept of marital rape. A Muslim woman cannot refuse sex with her husband. According to Islamic law, a husband may strike his wife for any of the following reasons. If she does not, uh, not attempt to please her, to be, to be beautiful, if she refuses to meet his sexual demands, if she leaves a house without permission of a, of a husband, if she neglects her religious duties, if a wife does not go to a mosque, any of these are also sufficient grounds for divorce. On the other hand, Allah allows men to force sex upon their unwilling wives. As I conclude on this matter, in chapter 22 and verse 19 to 22, 
this is a chapter that allows torture. Actually, in this chapter is where they allow them to burn non-Muslims with hot things. Like, here it says, fight and slay the non-Muslims, seize them, and lie in wait for them in every angle, and uh, burn their garments with fire, and cut them. This is torture. Pour hot things on them, boiling water, and any other chemical, whereby whatever is, is in their bowels and skin shall be dissolved. So they are saying that they have to burn you, that everything in you will be dissolved, that they will be punished with hooks of iron and rods. So this is where they get acid and put on people. Recently, you remember in the news, the, uh, the extremists in one of the Arab countries, they got women. Christian women, and they got gallons of acid, and they pour, they, pour, they drop them there. And the young children, they dropped them in acid, and they were all burnt severely. So these are teachings, and uh, many of them are in my book. Actually, in the Quran, 75 teachings of the Quran teaches about cutting off the heads of people. And... Uh, Around 100 plus verses talks about killing a non-Muslim and slaughtering among other things. Ladies and gentlemen, from today, I request you kindly to know that never at all be deceived that Islam is a peaceful religion. Never. And the message I'm giving to you is not because I want you to fear. It's not because I want you to hate, but it's a message of responsibility. The question is, what can we do at this stage? My conclusion is very simple. Number one, pray. This is not a political problem. It's a spiritual problem. We need to pray. Number two, let us mobilize and sensitize others in unity. As you have heard me saying this, what do you have to do? Also, go and tell others about this. Share with other people. Number three, let us make sure that we become advocates of Christianity. When there is something suppressed, suppressing our Christian right, let us make sure that we advocate there is one thing that is missing in a church. We complain too much on issues that we can stand and solve. For instance, when there is so, so, uh, voting, Christians, they don't vote. Many of them. Even they don't care about praying about voting. After voting, they want those people they did not vote to do what they want. That's a mistake. If we leave this country or our countries. In the hands of politicians, it will be a great disappointment because they will do what they want, not what we want. And more so, they are not believers. But there is one thing that the bad guys are doing and we need to do. In this modern world, like the country where you live, if a person complains on something, it's taken serious. That's why I encourage you, brothers and sisters, if there is a school or anything,
that is suppressing and sitting on the rights of Christians, let us mobilize as Christians, write a complaint, sign it, and send it there. If we sit here and say, you know, they are suppressing us, they will not know. In politics, if you don't say anything, if you keep quiet, silence means you are accepting whatever is going on. But if you complain, if you threaten to take them to court, it's an action that is added on prayer and it will work. And let us speak in advocating for people who are persecuted. When you hear people persecuted all over the country, all over the world, be concerned because if you don't stop it there, it will come here. And then let's support these organizations that are trying to stand with those people who are persecuted. Number four, let us groom our children. In the West and in Africa, it's coming up, mainly in the church. We leave our children to grow, that when they grow, they will decide. Now, the television and the streets and the, 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 the schools, at the age of one year, two years, three years, 16 years, they teach them nonsense. They corrupt their minds. By the time you want them to decide on God, they are already gone. They can do nothing. That's why Christians, you support Israel and your children, they are against Israel. Christians, you thank God and you love God. The children prefer Islamic terminologies. Today, Islam is targeting our children. In Africa, they have put a lot of money on children. Schools, they give scholarships and they marry Christian women. The idea is to take members out of the church to weaken the church and a number of things that we'll see in my book that I wrote about the Islamization agenda. Let's groom our children, sit with them, teach them, and try to make sure that we teach them to be ready to stand against this challenge of our days. Let us say no to the lies. When people bring lies in the world, let us not be part of the lies. Let us spread the truth. With those words, I want you uh, to ask you, wherever you remember me, pray for me. I've been staying in Israel. When I went back to Africa, still the people are threatening to kill me. I have survived 12 assassination attempts. Recently, they, 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 they threatened my family. I had to change my family to be in another country. I don't stay in the same country with my family. I just have to go visit them. Even you, I cannot tell you where they are because I know some Christians are so kind. One can go even at, uh, and post it somewhere that uh, pray for Uma Mulinde's children are there. And by the time I leave I, uh, no, <laughs> this place, I may find when children have, have gone. I need them to leave and preach the gospel as I preach. So pray for them. They are there. Just imagine if I was your father, what could your mind be thinking right now? So something is going through the mind of my children, but I want to thank God that even with this challenge, they still love Jesus and they still pray for me. They still stand with me. Another thing, I'm not alone. Like I told you, 30% of our church are ex-Muslims. They also get persecuted. What we did, apart from church, we are now establishing a rehabilitation center to take care of these persecuted converts. It demands a lot of money. 
It demands a lot of prayer. It demands a lot of work. It demands security because the people are hunting them. They want to kill them. We have buried some people have been poisoned, uh, hooked, and uh, strangled and killed because of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.